Hey, it's Corey Pine. This is News From Nowhere, brought to you by The Baffler Magazine. Subscribe at thebaffler.com. One interview this week with Angela Nagel, author of Kill All Normies, about the rise of the alt-right. Baffler readers may remember her excellent essay from issue number 30 called The New Man of 4chan. Uh, She talked about the beta uprising. Angela has been on the podcast circuit lately. She has gotten good reviews for the book and some critical ones, mostly from bloggers. We'll talk about that. Uh, But without further ado, Angela Nagel. How much time did you spend on sites like 4chan? Oh, well, because the research was based on a PhD uh, that I did, I I did my PhD on online anti-feminist movements. Uh, And so I was looking at all these things for about seven years. Um, I, I actually wrote the book really quickly. I mean, it must have been just a couple of months. So was your your research on online anti-feminism, did it focus in yeah. the same communities then? Yeah, a lot of the same stuff. So I would say uh, my book is a little bit more focused on the gender stuff than it is on race, um, which I think most people, if, if they were to come to the old right now, it would all be about race. But I thought it was interesting that the big preoccupation of a lot of the kind of online reactionary movements that had real energy behind them uh, over the last, you know, seven or eight years, it used to be very much about gender and they became much more obsessed with race later on. I I think that this uh, uh, men's movement, uh, the misogynistic online culture is really the skeleton key of the whole Mm. new right or alt-right, alt-light, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, when I first started looking at this stuff, one of the things that struck me as interesting, because I had been aware of previous kind of, you know, f- uh, well, pre-internet, I suppose, kind of forms of of, uh, of anti-feminism, is that I thought it was interesting that it was this really young, it seemed to be a very young age profile, and they didn't have any of the same, there was less of a preoccupation with things like, um you know, unequal treatment for fathers and family courts and things like that. And it was much more like about particular grievances that were of interest in sort of like geeky subcultural interests. And, you know, it was also kind of not really very attached at that time to a coherent conservative politics. Um, so it wasn't at the time giving a standard kind of a a, a, a conservative right anti-feminist line. It was it was often like, you know, say in 4chan, for example, all the misogyny would be mixed in with kind of uh, just kind of like hacker, computer game, like geeky interests and loads of porn. And, you know, it was countercultural, if you like. I mean, that's one of the main arguments in the book that, that these kind of right-wing movements are aesthetically countercultural. I, I want to get to that, too, uh, th- this question of whether it's countercultural or whether it's co-opted the counterculture. But let's stick with it, this this online misogynist sort of movement. Was your research able to trace where it started? I mean, it, did it emerge out of these image boards like 4chan, um, which we might want to define for people? Uh, was it organic or was it a conscious sort of uh, campaign? Um, I mean, I suppose with these things, when you're kind of tracing... When you're tracing ideas online, um, you know, unless you're going to do some sort of big data like approach to it, it it's it's always kind of impossible to have an exact line of of where something began and and so on. But I would just say that the development of of an anti-feminist kind of politics on 4chan, which started off as a very apolitical thing, it was purely aesthetic. It was about trolling. It was about you know, being irreverent about everything, it didn't start off as political. Uh, and, and it became political over the course of several years. Um, but say, for example, the red pill uh, on Reddit would have been a very important, more overtly political, anti-feminist kind of space. The moderator of that, right, uh, turned out to be a politician. Did you see that story? Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, this is fascinating. Let me pull it up. Okay, this was in the Daily Beast. Uh, New Hampshire state rep who created Reddit's Red Pill resigns. Representative Robert Fisher, the Republican who was recently unmasked as the creator and chief moderator of the Red Pill, 
one of the internet's most notorious forums for misogyny, resigned on Wednesday, this is in May, uh, following a New Hampshire legislative committee's passing of a recommendation that no action be taken against him, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, so the Daily Beast found out that this guy, uh, mm. Robert Fisher, re Republican state rep in New Hampshire, actually created the red pill for him. Whether that was just his interests, um, already being in politics, uh, but it seems like there was an effort to sort of make uh, make a movement out of these communities that may have had misogynistic sentiments. There's still a lot I think we don't know about how this all emerged. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say the red pill, as I said, was more overtly political and, you know, it was online and it and it had maybe a younger age profile than the very, you know, kind of family courts, father's rights style of like men's rights politics pre-internet would have had. But but I would say the Red Pill was more straight up anti-feminist men's rights politics, whereas the cross-pollination of the politics, the more overt politics of these kind of different uh, sites, um, you know, making a connection with 4chan or starting to appear on 4chan, I think that's a an interesting thing because of course 4chan was such a prolific creator of online kind of visual culture uh, and memes of course which you know by definition spread uh, far and wide so you could have endless sort of like um, discussions on something like red pill but a, a really clever meme made on 4chan would spread much further or a funny like expression that they came up with or whatever it might be so um and also because they didn't have this kind of overt overtly political um kind of easily identifiable kind of worldview they were able to slip into different places much easier so so for example i talk about this a little bit in the book i think it's very interesting that pretty much until Donald Trump was elected and, you know, people realized the very significant connection between the alt-right and particularly the politics board on 4chan. Right up until then, when it became completely undeniable that there was a connection there, um, 4chan was being written about in a very unusual way. Uh, so, for example, in academia, which is, of course, famously, uh, the humanities certainly are, you know, quite progressive-leaning um, and... Uh, but in academia, 4chan was being written about in a purely positive way, a uh, totally celebratory way, in fact, um, you know, right up until then. Let's let's pause here because I don't want to take for granted that all of my listeners are aware of exactly what 4chan is. They might have heard of it, but uh, maybe not visited. So briefly, uh, what is 4chan? Um, the best way to describe, to describe it is it's... Um, a kind of an image posting uh, board, uh, which is anonymous and uh, started off in sort of anime fan culture, uh, but became uh, particularly the random board on 4chan uh, became this very culturally significant site, which produced kind of hacker uh, collectives and, uh, you know, all kinds of like, you know, slang and, image culture and memes that probably everyone listening to this has has used but they may not be aware that that's where it came from well i right i think one of the important things about it is this if if a normal person a normie who is not uh already deeply versed in the in, a, in the, the lingo on a site like this were to come across it they would probably have a hard time understanding what's happening except they would obviously recognize that there's a lot of pornography on there yeah, I mean, it, certainly if you just landed into the middle of it now, uh, you would. I mean, you know, I think it's kind of something that anyone I've spoken to who spent a lot of time actually posting on it has done so when they were kind of younger. But the early academic literature on this site was, was generally positive? In what sense? Okay, so um, if you go back and look at, uh, say, writers like, um, Gabriela Coleman would be probably the most famous one, but also like I remember a piece by Harry Halpin in like um, Radical Philosophy, and uh, you know stuff like that. Um, there would also be uh, Whitney Phillips uh, wrote a book about a very good book about um, uh, kind of trolling culture, 
But uh, the way that all these sites were being written about at the time, I mean, Coleman certainly would have been much more inclined to celebrate 4chan as essentially the future of politics. And because if you think back, I mean, this was around the time of Occupy and the Arab Spring and the kind of fashionable ideas at the time were all about leaderlessness, networked politics. You know, Paul Mason's book was out about uh, why it's kicking off everywhere. And the idea was political parties are old, uh, they're they're no longer relevant to young people but we finally found the new way of doing politics which is on the internet and then replicating online uh network leaderless formations offline in the form of occupy and you know these kind of like um uh, street movements and 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 things like that so th those were kind of the ideas that were around at the time and there were a few people who were people like Evgeny Morozov, for example, who were kind of very much pushing against that. But that was, you know, I mean, there was just absolute explosion of, of publications um, arguing those kinds of things. And so then 4chan is there and 4chan has all the traits that they're describing as being progressive and the future of politics. It's leaderless, it's anonymous, it's connected to hacker movements like anonymous Um you know, it's uh, it, it's transgressive, it's countercultural, it's irreverent, it, you know, it, it has an anti-celebrity ethic, uh, you know. So, for example, Whitney Phillips described trolling as uh, counter-hegemonic uh, in a particular context. She was saying that um, she was describing like a Fox News report on 4chan and on, on kind of trolling culture. Uh, but, you know, say, for example, Gabriella Coleman was writing in a totally glowing way, uh, I, I would have thought about um, a lot of this stuff and even about, you know, uh, hackers who had already become far right, at, at, you know, at, at, at this point. Like Weave. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he already had like a swastika tattoo and he'd already become you know, about as far right as you can go. Um, and, and so what I was really interested in here, because I was studying this, you know, and I was reading all this really, really positive stuff saying like 4chan is this great, you know, countercultural space. And I was looking at its contents going, this is horrible stuff. Like it's really nihilistic. It's the nastiest stuff you can possibly think of. It's full of misogyny, full of racism. And here I am in an academic environment where you couldn't even whisper a conservative thought. You know what I mean? Like it, it would be at the very least seen as like just terribly unfashionable. And yet this horrible space is being celebrated. So why is that? So it got me thinking a lot about the way in which um, I suppose the, the kind of part of the kind of the, the, the politics of the cultural turn, if you like, um, in academia became very preoccupied with anti-normativity um, because it became less interested in the older politics of the left, the more materialist, um, more mass uh, party, mass organization kind of uh, um, interests of the left. It became obsessed with culture famously and but particularly anti-normativity. So it was all about the idea that just by, you know, engaging in some kind of subculture, you were resisting, you know, and everything was sort of resistance. This was like the, the, the cultural studies kind of idea. Um, and so, you know, it, the bar became incredibly low for like what was resistance. And I felt like there was a lot of that in there. And there was also a lot of that fetishization of the network of the anti-organizational kind of like, um, I guess the sort of anarchist um, uh, politics of the, the anti-globalization movement kind of period, you know. Um, and because I come from a socialist background, I'm very much looking at all of this stuff because this is kind of what was, this is all the, the, the leftovers of what was fashionable on the left when I was in my teens and 20s. And I'm very much of the view that none of it is any good, basically. And that, uh, you know, that, that a, 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 you know, a return to all the things that for all those years we were told were just old hat, no good, unfashionable, they'd never be popular again. So uh, class, the political party, trade unions, mass organizations, 
these are the things that actually will make a difference. You know, resisting on the internet by being transgressive. <laughs> you know, maybe you could say it's made a difference and it has become political, but not in a positive way. So the, let, let's talk about the alt-right. This was uh, widely attributed to, as a coinage to Richard Spencer, uh, the, I guess we can safely call him a, a neo-Nazi, uh, versus the alt-light. So w mm. what is the difference? Can you explain it for listeners? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the, the people who are now called alt-light, that category would be people like Milo and Mike Cernovich and Gavin McInnes and the rebel media um, sort of YouTube channel. Uh, and a lot of the people who are particularly preoccupied with kind of Gamergate and free speech and stuff like that. And essentially, it's a, it's it's you know it's a, it's it's clearly a pejorative, like suggesting that they're just the light diet version of the real deal, kind of, which is the alt right. And one of the things that's often said about them by the alt right is that they, you know, they, they don't really they're not really for anything. They don't really have any ideas. Uh, if you push them on what they're for, I mean, Paul Joseph Watson, I suppose, would be another one. So they're they're you know they they make fun of social justice warriors, and that's mostly what they do. And when it really comes down to what they are for, it's kind of pretty ordinary stuff. Like a lot of it is, you know, they're in favor of free speech. Like that's not that outrageous a position. It's certainly not anything new. Whereas the alt-right, you know, who are all about race, they regard it as a kind of species almost or like a, you know, very strict biological category and also they're identitarians. So the alt-right would describe themselves as right identitarians, whereas the alt-light might say something like, I, mean, I remember Milo, for example, saying that the alt-right and the social justice warriors are identity politics and we should, we should reject identity politics. The old right too has this kind of older age cohort. Like, you could have come to the alt right through 4chan, for example. The politics board on 4chan is is pretty much alt right. Um, you could have come to it through like you know Daily Stormer type of um, Nazi stuff, but there are, for example, groups like American Renaissance who are all kind of older guys, uh, mostly, um, and. You know, they they didn't come to it through any of that. I mean, they were in, in into this stuff, you know, before they were online. Um, so, so the people who've kind of emerged as as significant in the alt right are a mix of everyone from, you know, Jared Taylor at American Renaissance, who's written books and who you know has quite a scholarly approach to things and has a, a quite a gentlemanly kind of demeanor, to anonymous like trolls who came from 4chan who have pepe avatars and who kind of are ultra offensive and a bit younger and so on so so it is mixed there isn't a very exact like there isn't like one main way that you would have come to to one or the other but i think the important distinction is a philosophical one it's it's not just a kind of a macho kind of like you're a, a watered down version of us the old light may use offensive language but when they are pressed on what they're actually for, uh, what they are for is typically not anything that extreme or unusual. Um, they, they, they adopted the culture of being offensive and so on. But again, a lot of them are basically in favor of like American exceptionalism with a bit of nationalism and um, free speech and stuff like that. Just very ordinary kind of Republican things. They just adopted a, a style that was part of internet culture, the online internet sort of right-wing culture that has emerged in these years. Whereas the alt-right are a total radical break from that philosophically. I mean, they are saying American exceptionalism is wrong. American nationalism is a hoax, you know, or, or is something foolish to believe in. That America, like every other country, is based on race. And it is character, it's characterized by its, you know, by its racial component. Uh, and and the you know the the sort of wasp uh, origins of it I suppose, um, you know so so that is different because the alt light are are saying the opposite to that they're saying we want uh, civic nationalism, and you know we don't want to for everyone to be getting into these racial categories and 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 kind of um, being separated off into racial categories. 
Now, I think this is this is getting uh, into an interesting area, um, and we might disagree on this. I'm not sure, uh, but I also think that we're getting into territory that has inspired some of the criticism of your book and within the left. So, do you mm. do you think that either the alt right or the alt light or both are 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 they fascist movements? Um. The alt-right, at the risk of being pedantic, I suppose, right? Uh, fascist is kind of the worst term to use because they're actually not very interested in the nature of the state. You know, so European fascism in the early 20th century came about, you know, it's often forgotten pretty much right after democratization had happened. Democratization, the expansion of the vote and so on, was very recent and uh, people had still not settled on this idea that it was okay for so many people to have a say in kind of who gets elected and so on. So like that was a very significant part of European fascism, the, the, the hierarchy of the state and stuff like that. They're not really interested in that. What they are interested in is race. And um, their view is that uh, basically because we are all kind of brainwashed into this liberal dogma that says race race is socially constructed, gender is socially constructed, and so on, um, that they're saying, no, uh, we've been lied to. These are all very important biological categories and, they, and that you basically cannot get beyond them, uh, that they define everything that comes after that. So just as an example, I remember seeing Richard Spencer being interviewed um, I reference him a lot because he he's one of the most articulate kind of figures that they have. But anyway, I remember him saying uh, before that like he would be fine with the idea of a socialist economy. He would consider a free market economy. And basically, anything is possible, but as long as you get the race bit of it right. So as long as a society is based upon white people, um, it can achieve great things under any kind of system, like so. That's really what it is. It's not about it's not about the other bits of fascism. It is it is almost a hundred percent about race. Uh, so that would be the on the on the alt right. But what what about the alt light? You know, I think they don't really know what they believe. I mean, that's why maybe it's I think a you're bit right hard. about that. They're constantly contradicting themselves as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they. Um, I I think the criticism of them coming from those to their right, the much more hardcore sort of people, uh, that they don't really believe in anything is kind of true. Like Cernovich well, is is an idiot, right? He is he is just uh, he is an ignorant uh, and. Uh, none too clever person who has some level of I don't know determination <laughs> just keep <laughs> well, posting and eventually you'll get you'll you'll uh, you'll build a following I guess uh, yeah but he doesn't yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't seem to have thought through much of what he says no they they didn't think past the just making fun of social justice warriors bit you know, like that's pretty much as far as they went. And then suddenly they were famous, you know, and they were left kind of going, oh, actually, we're not really sure what we believe here. Um, you know, and yeah. I feel like Richard Spencer is much more, he's studied, he's studied uh, history, studied political tactics mm. and strategy. Uh, he's, he's very methodical in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, his background is so interesting because, uh, I think it's quite well known now, but he he did his master's thesis on uh, Adorno, um, which is kind of funny because all the alt light people are always going on about cultural Marxism. You know, um, they use this term in such an ignorant way; it just drives me crazy. But um, you know, they 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 see someone with pink hair and they think, "Oh my God, cultural Marxism!" You know, <laughs> uh, whereas you know Spencer's actually read, uh, you know, the Frankfurt School, and he. Um, you know, so so they are quite different in that way, but that's kind of dangerous too because it's like the the ones who won't go as far as saying, yeah, we need a white ethno state are the kind of stupid ones, you know, <laughs> uh, and the ones who have actually read a bit and so on have the much more sinister kind of uh, ideas. You know, when you talk about it, sounds kind of like the alt light is sort of looking to the alt right for cues 
<laughs> about what to do and what to think. I mean, is, do do you worry that it's we we've normalized this group too too much already? Is it is it are we already being too easy on this group of alt light if if they're just kind of going along? Yeah, well, well, this is I think what has sort of happened. Um, the alt light were very good at you know. Um, they they had enormous appeal to a younger online audience and they were very good at media, like sort of online alternative media. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how um, when Trump got elected and everyone was like desperately kind of flailing around going, who are these people? What, why have they got like, you know, 10 times more followers than, than me? And like, you know, you know, people discovered pretty quickly that these guys had this entire alternative media infrastructure that other people were just not even aware of. But if you had gone down that rabbit hole, you would have known about all of it, you know, and how big it was. Um, so I think that, yeah, so so this all happened really quickly. And their whole idea was that we're just going to keep critiquing the, the social justice left. Uh, and then obviously when Trump got elected, it suddenly kind of, it was like uh, one of those moments where, a year happens in a day kind of everything just you know suddenly they were they were asked like to have a a worked out position and a solution for every every problem that they were talking about and they just didn't have that you know uh, because um they weren't willing to go as far as uh these kind of uh far you know very far right kind of race oriented guys so i don't know i mean you know whether to blame them or not um I think the I think there is a, a huge split happening now. Like if you just look at any of their Twitter accounts, you see that right now, and it's been this has been happening for a while, but it it, it certainly uh, gotten gotten uh, more pronounced lately. Um, the 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 fights going on between the the Cernovich sort of alt light people and the the alt right are huge, and they're much more vicious than than either group is now being towards the left. Like they're they're incredibly vicious and. They're personally attacking each other, you know, trying to destroy each other. Um, so, so that's kind of what's happening now. So, I, I think one of the outcomes may be that the alt light sees the alt right in all of its uh, kind of really sinister aspects that other people have already, you know, that has been more obvious to other people. Uh, they will see that it's not ironic, that it's not a joke, and that it is actually quite sinister. And they may have to go in some, they may be forced in some slightly different direction politically. Um, maybe it will pain them to just be kind of centrist or something, but there will have to be some major kind of break there. Uh, and so up until now, up until th these two groups have gotten to the point where they are now, where they're, where they're constantly fighting, um, what was happening was that the old light, the old light were were the good kind of like media people, like alternative media, online media people who were really good at Twitter, who were really good at like as Milo was kind of getting attention, making you know br bringing young people in and so on. But then what happened was they didn't have the ideas to keep those people there, and a lot of those people who came in through them as teenagers maybe. Uh, moved way over to the right because the old right were able to then say well those guys don't have any ideas they don't have any of the answers to the problems that that we're all kind of discussing this infighting do you do you think that it's genuinely uh, about ideological differences or philosophical differences or is it about jockeying for power and opportunities especially now that there's like a a perceptible path to power for these people mm -hmm. i mean you know steve bannon's in the white house and, uh, you know, they might need a new spokesman soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's both at the same time. I mean, um, they're certainly not, not mutually exclusive. I mean, I think the philosophical differences are there and because the alt-right have gone as far as you can go, pretty much, they've taken their ideas as, as far as you can go to their kind of logical conclusion. I think it, what it looks like is that they're trying to publicly force those slightly to the center of them uh to be kind of uh humiliated essentially like they're, they're making a spectacle of humiliating them by exposing the fact that they don't have ideas and they don't have answers to the problems that they're talking about um 
And, you know, but, but if you were I mean, trying to ensure, keep them in line and ensure that they stay as far to the right as you are, or, you know, uh, just put, put rightward pressure on them, that would be the way to do it, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember, for example, seeing Gavin McInnes saying something like, you know, I don't want any Nazis in my movement because Americans fought the Nazis and, you know, whatever. And then uh, um, Richard Spencer said on Twitter, um, why did why did we fight them? You know, and it was just such a funny moment because McInnes was like desperately trying to to have to to make this about American nationalism, uh, but but actually very unexamined kind of American nationalism. Whereas I think the alt right are much more they they have examined those ideas a lot more, you know, and they're they 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 would be extremely critical of things like you know. I, I suppose the kind of Republican uh, mix of like nationalism and consumerism and sort of pro-war politics. I mean, because Spencer comes from that, um, he used to work at American Conservative. Uh, and obviously, of course, uh, Pat Buchanan uh, and that kind of American Conservative project was uh, opposed to the neocons and to the Iraq war. Uh, so, so they're also, you know, isolationists and, you know, the, 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 in other words, they've they've thought all of this stuff through, um, uh, but they were, but their conclusions were so extreme that people would not have been brought over to them if it weren't for the bridge of the alt light people who kind of brought in all these young people uh, who might have just been like, you know, uh, a bit skeptical of like um, uh, feminism or might might have you know, looked at kind of feminist online cultures and thought they were a bit silly or whatever, you know, uh, it could start out as, with something as small as that. So uh, one takeaway from this conversation is uh, it's clarifying my thinking. I mean, somebody like Milo or Cernovich is, is ultimately highly replaceable, or somebody yes. like Richard Spencer is more dangerous and not necessarily as replaceable. Uh, yeah. However, there's something they've tapped into that is popular. Um, mm. And this is where your book, I mean, you criticize uh, the Tumblr, Tumblr left. You know, one of the, one criticism I have heard of the book is that it doesn't actually, uh, it doesn't actually directly refute the ideas of the alt-right. Like it doesn't go through their ideas and say, here's why they're wrong. And that's true. The book doesn't do that. That wasn't my aim. I, I felt like uh, just trying to describe them, but also to describe the relationship between the online communities that gave them that youthful energy and uh, the relationship between online communities of the left and the right and how they interacted with each other and I suppose gave uh, this whole generation a slightly, I would say, warped idea of where, you know, it explains where they all got this idea that society is going to hell, that everything you know, that Western civilization is collapsing and everything's terrible. And, you know, they, I think that they, they spent so much time in these in these warring kind of online communities that they uh, both sides in some way kind of completely lost touch with the, the, the normal, like everyday life of the country that they live in. If you go outside your front door, uh, most people won't, have any idea what any of the contents of this book are about. Um, and part of your argument is essentially that uh, the left uh, and liberals created an, an opening um, that the right is exploiting. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I guess the problem is people are very wary of the kind of horseshoe theory thing. So this thing that you, you see a lot where centrist kind of journalists constantly compare the left and the right and say they're basically the same they're all extremists and so on uh, so it's very important that I make myself clear that is absolutely not what I'm saying at all um, I'm saying that there was a particular culture that developed that I suppose you would have to say is on the left side of the spectrum um, to me, it's very much a product of it's it, it's taking cultural individualism to its logical conclusion, because it's it was very much about um, kind of 
being a totally unique person and, you know, developing your, your own completely unique sexuality and, 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 you know, um, it's a culture of constant kind of obsession with one's own internal life and describing your, you know, your, your pain and your, um, your own kind of completely unique quirks and so on, you know? So, um, it was always a kind of an online culture that, that I just, you know, it, I mean, I was kind of too old for it anyway, but it, I also, I always just didn't really like, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean the, the best way I could describe it, I, the reason I use Tumblr is because people have been so pedantic about this. People have said, you know, but look at the dates of like when 4chan was founded, when Tumblr started, you know, I'm using these as broad kind of, um, markers of, of kind of political styles online. Uh, you know, the, the style, the, the kind of Tumblr identity politics style exists way outside of Tumblr. Um, and not everything on Tumblr is like that. So th these are just broad kind of terms that I try to use because nobody has really come up with a name for this stuff. Um, that, that was kind of the best I could do. I mean, the right called them social justice warriors. Um, but then, you know, but I, I obviously I'm not going to use that because they would probably call me that, you know. Um, so I was trying to identify this particular strain of politics on the left um, that was, to my mind, very anti-materialist, um, uh, entirely preoccupied, exclusively preoccupied with identity categories and with the um, the self and the the you know, one's own feelings and so on. And and it tended to be very militantly opposed to um, any kind of, anything it perceived as being uh, brochialism or like uh, too masculine or, you know, too heteronormative or whatever on the left. Um, and so that's the kind of culture that you see across moving onto college campuses, very anti-free speech, um, very into the idea of being personally wounded by other people's points of view and so on. And the, the problem was that the right accurately criticized and, uh, and described that uh, movement style, whatever you want to call it, tendency. Um, and then the left, I think, even though we experienced this uh, internal movement as an entirely negative force. I mean, in my experience anyway, uh, people on the left did not want to be seen to be agreeing with people on the right. So when Milo would criticize them, I think a lot of people on the left were privately saying, okay, that's an accurate description of this like subculture or whatever, but I don't want to publicly say that because then I'll be accused of being right-wing or agreeing with a right-winger. Uh, that's probably true. I mean, I'm sure there's also a genuine concern that, um, it would be, it would needlessly give the right, uh, ammunition at a time when they're ascendant. Oh, definitely. No, it's true. And, and, and it's a very hard, it was actually very hard. Like, cause I was thinking about when I was thinking about writing the book, I was having those kind of internal arguments. I was thinking, do I really need to add anything to this? I mean, given like, you know, every time something happens on campus, a person asks for trigger warning or whatever it is. Now it's like a huge, like international at this point kind of story. Like newspapers pick up on it immediately. And, and there's such, um, you know, people, there's such an audience there who, who hates this kind of culture. Um, and so part of me was thinking, you know, maybe I shouldn't feed that in some way by by adding by admitting that this is a real problem. But then another part of me thought, well, some you know, what are the maybe it's best to draw out the most positive tendencies that are happening in the left in order to create a real alternative to uh, these kind of this kind of rightward turn that's happening generally. Um, and I think that. Um, I think that it, I just realized at a certain point where I felt that it was necessary to essentially make a break uh, between the, the the left that I would associate with Corbyn and Sanders, the left that is concerned with uh, 
you know, money and power and uh, class and the, 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 the daily material struggles of the vast majority of people uh, to make a break between that and this kind of, uh, as I say, just very individualist, kind of obscurantist, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say insane, but like uh, certainly um, a culture that is obsessed with its own uh, vulnerability and uh, that, that that looks pretty crazy on from the outside to the outside world. I mean, you know, uh, during during this whole period of watching all the Milo videos and so on, you know, I cringed with embarrassment uh, that that these people were being, um, you know, were were being called the left. You know, um, and so I thought ultimately it was important to have an internal uh, critique of them. I certainly don't question your motives for wanting to have that conversation i'm probably more sympathetic although i i've been subject to the sort of exhausting like call out culture um that you criticize mm -hmm. i guess i am more sympathetic to the students who didn't want people like milo or ann coulter for instance coming to their campus and having their student fees subsidize their appearances sure. um to to spread hate speech I, I i think i guess i don't i don't agree that that this no platforming thing is is a is a tactic that has no place however i think there are a lot of problems with call-out culture so mm. i mean the fact that the reaction that you've gotten um sort of uh accusing you of betraying uh Betraying your allies on the left for even having this debate um, mm. is is not fair, in my opinion. Uh, and it also overlooks the fact that certain didn't you've gotten an equal or greater pushback uh, or pressure or harassment from people on the right that you wrote about as well, right? I mean, uh, there, I remember something about a campaign to to bury your your book on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. I mean. You know, um, I think I've handled the, you know, I knew the backlash was going to happen and I knew I would get it from both sides, which is, <laughs> which is horrible. But I thought, you know, so I, I wanted somebody to write this kind of book because I knew that lots of people were privately uh, really, really sick of the call out culture and the fact that it was constantly being used in very cynical and dishonest ways. Um, everyone I know on the left can tell countless stories at this point along these lines that basically people with personal grievances against others used when this kind of call out thing was at its height. And I, I hope it's in decline now. I think it is used the culture of that in order to silence opponents and to get their own way, essentially. Um, so, for example, the ridiculous claims of, um, you know, misogyny and macho brutalism and so on against, you know, Corbyn and Sanders, um, that that's a more mainstream kind of uh, incarnation of what I'm talking about. But, but it's that style of thing, you know, th this idea that, like, if I say something is... Uh, sexist, even if I have absolutely no evidence and it makes no sense, everyone has to immediately do as I say. And, you know, and, and this kind of politics has been so consistently used to attack the left. It's been consistently used to attack any version of the left that had any chance of actually having popular appeal and therefore actually having some influence on the the majority of the society. I mean, you know, and, and that's a real problem because I'm not just on the left because I I sort of uh, you know want everyone to be equal or something like that. I mean I I'm I feel personally self interested in it. Like I can't afford rent. You know um, uh, you know I can't get out of a totally precarious kind of existence. Like you know and so on. So I, I I'm personally invested in things getting better somehow uh, materially. And I just don't I, I you know I just got to a point where I was so sick of seeing everything the left did attacked by so-called um, uh, people on the left, uh, you know, just constantly trying to bash everything that was being done uh, in the name of 
feminism or something like this. Uh, and people on the left just have to criticize these people. You know, they, they, they just are a problem. I mean, and they, they don't spend most of their time attacking the right. They spend most of their time attacking the left. And the particular version of the left that they don't like is the one that has popular appeal. There's an aspect of this conversation. It's an issue that race is raised by your book and, and the way that you frame your argument. The people on the alt-light who do not have well-formed politics in some ways are a stand-in for, in my view, young, alienated uh, people who are looking to get politically active in some way because their circumstances are pushing them to that. They don't feel enfranchised. And it seems to me that implicit in your argument about the, the left culture, the left eating itself through identity politics and culture wars and call-out culture uh, is the presumption that perhaps some of those alt-light people could be recruited to the left if uh, certain arguments were presented differently. I mean, at the very least, I would say they wouldn't have gone to the right. You know, I'm not sure they would ever have gone uh, gone to the left, but um, yeah, probably some of them w might have. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, I mean, because as you like, the, you know, they are, uh, you know, young and their ideas are not fully formed. And many of them, you know, might have just had like, you know, particularly younger people now who have grown up online and who have become politicized online and whose whole kind of, um, uh, you know, experience of, of kind of coming into contact with political ideas would have happened online right at the time when young people are at their most curious and um, wanting to kind of try out ideas and explore things and so on. Um that that right at that time, you know, what is present there is significant. And what they see or what they saw in those years that I'm examining was like Milo, who was presenting himself as this fun, transgressive, you know, character who said, you know, anything, you can say anything and not, there are no limits to what you can say, right? And then the other side saying, the limits to what you can say are so great that there's almost nothing you can possibly say that we could not call you out for. Like, even if you try to say the most right on thing you can possibly conceive of, one of us will find a way to show that it's actually not right on enough and that you actually might have to, um, you know, re rethink um, your ideas and that you, you might need to publicly apologize and so on. I mean, come on, like what 16 year old is going to is going to even have to think about which one of those two is more attractive? It's, it's not a contest. And I think that I, I basically uh, I basically agree uh, with the argument that you're presenting. However, there's something very real. And so, you know, when when somebody like Bernie Sanders uh, is is he's trying he's he's making the argument that I just stated essentially in a very sort of low key way, basically like we need to get uh you know rural Americans back on the left. The way to do that is through labor politics and uh you know that means dropping some of the uh sort of call out culture habits uh the 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 wokeism. Um, mm. that the Democratic Party in the U.S. has sort of embraced as part of its coalition-building strategy. Uh, however, I mean, I think that there is uh, a pretty strong counter-argument that's, well, easy for you to say, white people. I mean, and also it's fair for, for people uh, who are black, brown, trans, uh, you know, feminist, whatever, to say, why would I be part of a coalition with people that wouldn't have me to their house for dinner or who might drag mm. me behind a truck, you know, or who might, mm. uh, you know, advocate for my, uh, me not to have uh, equal rights in society. And I don't think that the, uh, the sort of the labor left, the, the resurgent uh, socialist movement has come up with a strong answer to that. Uh, I think we're still sort of stuck at that part of the argument. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I, I see, I see what you mean. I mean, the thing is, though, 
I would say, I would put it another way and say all we have had for decades since, uh, you know, the Reagan and Thatcher era really, uh, you know, kind of destroyed uh, that older part of the left. All that we have actually had is identity politics. Uh, and my point is not that that the, the concerns that are often raised, um, it, you know, within identity politics are wrong. My claim, and this would be the, the claim I think of most uh, socialists would be that um, that you're not going to actually achieve those things uh, just through identity politics. So, I mean, for example, you know, um, Bernie uh, criticized like the Hillary campaign. Um, I think he said something like, you know, being a woman is not enough. Um, and so it, it's that kind of idea that like, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the pure identity politics of like recognition and stuff like that uh, can never do what real uh, large scale organizing can do. Um, and so like R.L. Stevens, for example, I think is brilliant on this. I mean, he has he articulated very well this distinction. It's not that, for example, race doesn't matter or something like that, or it's not that like you should just uh, ignore all of all of these things. It's that the 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 strategies of pure identity politics are not actually going to improve the lives of the people that they are supposed to uh, improve and that you know organizing people and particularly you know this idea that like labor unions are some kind of white male preserve uh, labor unions particularly in america are have never been less white or male you know and that those are the patterns that have emerged and th that's going to be the same going forward they're going to be more female and less white as they go on all the big um unionizable kind of um uh sectors are largely not male and white uh, and so we have to get this idea out of our heads that that this is what labor unions are so for example as the labor unions get more and more uh you know, female dominated and less white. Are we going to continue to say that the best way to improve the lives of, let's say, black women is through, um, you know, uh, the kind of like tokenistic uh, politics of, of the, like, you know, liberal center? Or is it going to be through something that is actually going to change the income of that group of people? Um, you know, I mean, I'm very much one of the reasons I'm, I'm, you know, I make such a kind of materialist argument here is that, um, you know, money does matter. And if you actually have, if you are able to change the material conditions of your life, then the cultural, uh, the culture kind of follows from that, you know? Uh, and so I don't know the obsession with the idea that, every panel has to have this head count, you know, that that's the kind of style of identity politics that, that I'm, I think has really reached its limit at this point. I mean, when the groups of people who, who, you know, they want to see represented on, on every panel and, and so on, um, have actually gained materially through organizing the cultural power will follow from that. They're trying to do it the other way around. They think that if they get, uh, if they can change the exact demographics of who gets an Oscar and like how many people are represented on screen and movies and, and advertising and things like that, that that is where change comes from. It just isn't. It's not, it's not just in the culture. It's also, as you alluded to in these uh, academic spaces and organizing spaces, where, uh, you know, this is where I think it's almost like it's uh, it's the 19th century again, and there's these uh, uh, socialist versus anarchist battles. I think I think a lot of it boils down to to that as well. Like an occupy, mm. you had this fixation on leaderlessness, which I always thought mm. was completely unworkable. But in, mm. in spaces that that prize leaderlessness. How is power? It's not as though power does not exercised, but it's exercised in different ways in through character assassination, um, which is really what you're talking about when you're talking about the abuse of identity politics. Right. Mm, uh, yeah. And through uh, sort of uh, it, it, subtle inter interpersonal dynamics 
um, yeah, through yeah. the through the use of of shame and 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 other sort of psychological techniques. And you know what we're really talking about is the terms under which uh, you know the left can organize is allowed to organize. And I think also there are elements of the left, um, and these may be some of the same people you're talking about too, who do not actually want power. Uh, yes. Who want who 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 want turf. Uh, who want to carve out a space in the system as it is. And that may be as a uh, sort of uh, bully figure uh, that prevents the left from achieving bigger victories. Um, as, as cynical and horrible as that sounds, after, uh, I don't know, four or five decades of decline, you do have to wonder, has this way of organizing the left worked? And I think yeah, the answer I mean, is obviously not. Obviously not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, they're also very preoccupied with purity, you know, and that is why being a, an exclusive subculture kind of suits that style of politics, because it's like we are going to constantly purify ourselves and constantly kick out anyone who is impure, but remain small. And uh, that way, because we'll never have to take power, we don't have to worry about becoming corrupted or... You know, I mean, to, I suppose to take a more sympathetic view of it, um, maybe somebody like Adam Curtis would say this, you know, we have, we are living in the aftermath of all these failed utopian projects. So in a way, it's easier to not try, um, because when you do try to take power, you're probably going to do something wrong. You're, you know, you, and, and, and every, it's not going to be exactly the, the utopia that you wanted, and you're not going to be able to be completely pure you're probably going to have to make alliances with people you don't like uh, or that you might disagree on with certain things. I mean, I, I would have to make alliances with, uh, you know, men whose attitudes to women I might not like or, or whatever it might be, you know. But Terry Eagleton uh, uh, put this very nicely um, and kind of has written about this actually a very long time ago. As you say, we're kind of repeating some old arguments. But Terry Eagleton said, like, people that love the the small kind of subcultural politics of identity are too young to remember a time when the left completely reshaped the world because they had these huge mass movements um you know on a vast scale we can't even imagine that and so we have to we have to think really small and keep things really pure well, that's just never going to attract ordinary people. And, and I'm not using ordinary people here as a euphemism for white people. I'm saying, you know, anyone who doesn't spend their entire day on Twitter, basically, you know, belongs to the category of like ordinary people. Um, You know, you're not even speaking the same language anymore. If you go into this style of politics and, and the, the, the exclusive kind of incredibly strict uh language codes that they use and so on like that that's just not going to be ever something that will will be attractive to the majority of people but you know an interesting thing i mean i would just uh like to get this in here at some point in in terms of the response to the book i mean the book i would say uh is about 80% about the alt right and about 20% about the the more negative parts of the left that i have criticisms uh, of uh, or seventy thirty, something like that. But you would swear by the response that I got from from those people that the book was entirely uh, some kind of anti left tract. Like it's for I saw people describing it as right wing, for example. I mean, show me any idea that's right wing in the book. Like if you think that that's right wing, then you simply cannot know anything about the history of the left before Reagan and Thatcher. You know. Um, you you must have a totally postmodern like eighties idea of like uh you know what the left is um and you know another fascinating thing is that you know inevitably of course I got lots of personal insults but one of the ones that I thought was kind of interesting is that both the alt right and to use a kind of crude imperfect term the Tumblr left described me as self promoting. And I thought that was kind of intriguing because, of course, they're all claiming to be feminists and uh, they regard, you know, like actually a sort of a breakthrough book that was done with a very small indie publisher 
sort of out of nowhere. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to hoard the books in my house and not allow anyone to buy them <laughs> in order to not be self-promoting? I'm not quite sure. That is strange because it is, uh, it is exactly what the online right says about women all the time. Yes, uh, exactly. Especially, you know, you saw that in Gamergate where it was one of the main lines of attack against these women who had dared to become <laughs> video game developers was that they were just attention seeking. Uh, yeah. And, you know, of course, that the, the language was much worse than that, uh, misogynistic, but I won't use it here. But, uh, you know, it's it's kind of ironic that that's one of the charges being sent your way. Well, yes, precisely. The only way that I can interpret it is um, that they that when a woman or any person in the identity groups that they're supposed to be promoting has an independent thought, they have to absolutely trash them and, you know, personally vilify them and personally attack them and try to slander them. And, you know, this is where this whole, like, this is why so many people were turned off of the left. And, you know, I, I, I think that we're starting to see the decline of this stuff and the rise of a more, um, of a kind of a left politics that normal people can actually relate to. And that's a positive thing. I hope, I hope, I really hope things keep going in that direction. You know, I'm pretty concerned with, uh, I don't know, I guess uh, some uh, achieving some measure of, of left unity at this moment, because mm. while I see tremendous opportunities, I also feel like uh, we're under tremendous threat um, mm. You know, with the 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 kinds of governments that have been taking power all over the world, um, mm. that it's not unimaginable that um, you know even ha being able to have this sort of discussion is not something that's uh, possible in five or ten years. Um, mm. You know, if things go the wrong way, uh, I hope that's not how it pans out. But I think we need to look at the ways in which the left or the nominal left is contributing to that. Um, and I think that yeah. your, your, your book helps to do that. Oh, good. I mean, that's what I, that's what I was kind of hoping for. I mean, I think that if I had just written a straight up, here's why the old right is bad. Uh, it would have been kind of a boring book and you should be able to have discussions within the left where you ask questions around these subjects that are taboo because w when you when you get out of your left bubble and you get you know the right will not be shy about asking them and you better have an answer ready for when they do uh, and and i really think it has intellectually destroyed the left to have such a shutdown culture internally uh, and that's another reason why i thought it was really important to uh to critique that ultra sensitive culture because I think that it has done massive damage to our ability to actually articulate our own ideas. The online world is very dangerous in the sense that if you say one wrong thing, there's always some little detective out there who's going to capture it and who's going to be using it against you for the rest of your life. You know, um, uh, if you do anything wrong, there's kind of there's nothing you can do and, and, and you can never get get your reputation back again. And so people are absolutely terrified to, to say anything wrong, you know, um, and that is why, I mean, I, I think this is such an uncontroversial point. I'm amazed that, well, uh, I'm not amazed and yet I still am kind of in the same way with the Trump thing uh, that, that people are so uh, uh, sort of offended by it. But it's so obvious to me that the, the whole culture, that, that kind of 4chan trolley right wing culture of being insensitive for fun anonymously that that would emerge in response to the ultra sensitive culture in which everything is off the table everything is considered problematic or even you know a hanging offense um you know of course then these guys are going to say well if we just go on and uh, anonymously we can say whatever we want and we can really drive them crazy uh identity politics gave us you know, the gay rights movement, it gave us feminism, 
It gave us the civil rights movement. It's, you know, I would never want to say identity politics is not important. I mean, um, I would not have, uh, you know, the life that I do, or, you know, or, or the status that I do if it weren't for uh, identity movements uh, that came before me. Um, but uh, so, so, so it's wrong to get stuck in kind of using that language, I suppose. You know, people need to be able to disagree in some kind of a civilized way and to um, to make their case and to be comrades as well, you know, um, and to know that if you disagree with somebody on something, you still have some kind of fundamental solidarity with them that you will that they will both parties will be respectful to one another and they won't try to get each other blacklisted and kicked out and you know chased off of twitter and all this kind of crazy stuff that's been uh, you know just totally dominating the 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 whole like certainly the younger kind of left scene for the last couple of years that does seem like a good place to wrap it up Um, all right (laughs) yeah nice talking to you Okay, thanks, Angela. Thank you, listeners. Write me at delete my account at newsfromnowherepodcast.com. This is Corey Pine, News From Nowhere. Take care of yourselves.